0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. We're so excited that you're here because uh, we believe God's got a great word today. This is a very pivotal word. This, we're going to talk about how God makes us in mercy, made in mercy. And, um, and that's what the world needs more of right now, you know, the mercy of God coming through. But God is there freely giving the mercy, His mercy. The question is, are we freely receiving His mercy? And so in in this series, Made for Greatness, part two, we've been looking at the life of David. Um, If you're just joining us today, thank you for joining us. We we believe that uh, you are made for greatness. Every single one of us in here is made for greatness. And so we've been unfolding in David's life. You know, sometimes greatness starts with obscurity. And obscurity, it's to deal with insecurities. And so how do we do that? Well, you have to listen to week one because, you know, we're in week five. And I wouldn't have time today to explain today's word and then go back to week one on that. So insecurities, we talked about also the importance of greatness is starting with the little things, and then that's that was week two. Week three, we talked about how to deal with attacks and persecution. In the journey to greatness, there's going to be oppositions, and some of those are in, within our own lives and authority figures in our lives. And how do we handle that? When spears are thrown at us, what do we do? Do we retaliate spears? Well, The question is, you got to go and listen to week three. And then last week, uh, we talked about as David becomes king now, uh, what do we do in in greatness? And so from David's life, we learn what to do. And also you can learn from David and what not to do, right? And so that was last week. We looked a little bit about how David was a man after God's heart. So he always looked to God for discernment and direction, uh, but he lacked discretion in in doing something because he didn't didn't search out God's word and will in carrying the presence of God. And so we talked about the importance of the presence of God last week. Well, here we are talking about the mercy of God made in mercy. So mercy, I'm going to get a little bit deeper later on, but mercy is basically not getting what you deserve. When someone shows you mercy, there's a, usually a punishment that you are deserving of. You've done something wrong, but when you receive mercy, you're not getting what you deserve. And so for those of us who have read Scripture, this is a very infamous story that I remember the first time reading this. I just couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, so for if you've never read this before, uh, First Sam, or sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to look at David and we're going to look at someone named Bathsheba. Because from this, we can learn what not to do. But yet through it, it also speaks of God's great mercy. And it's amazing that only in, in uh, when you look at Scripture, only David is mentioned as a man after God's heart. And so we talked about here, the premise of this whole series, is that for us to be made in greatness, we all have to be a woman or a man after God's heart. And so this is good news because David was not perfect, and so if you're perfect in here, this message is not for you. The door's that way, but for the rest of us, we know we're not perfect, and that's good news that we can still be people after God's heart. And and so what I'm about to read is scandalous. Uh, there's going to be even murder involved, and this is the king of Israel. David is the most not- notable king. The most famous king, the, the king that's held in highest regard uh, in Israel, that Israel's ever had. But yet, what we're going to read is just mind-blowing, and, but yet it speaks of the mercy of God. And, and, and the great thing about that is, even as I, when, when I'm going to read this, it also speaks of God's truth, that this scripture is eternally and divinely inspired, inspired by the breath of God inspiring men to write this word because if men put together this bible you you best believe right in our fleshly tendencies we just want to record people are going to read this in 2022 okay we better not put in that part about David and Bathsheba we better not put in that part about what Peter did and how all his disciples ran from Jesus let's omit that So people who say, oh, Christianity is made up, you can't trust the Bible, man, if this was written by just human intuition and and will, we wouldn't have a lot of what we have today. But every page, every word is divinely inspired by God. So what we have here is the complete scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but here we are as we start with uh, today in our scripture reading, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to look at verse, uh, chapter 12 as well later on. So we start with chapter 11. It says, in the springtime when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Let's go ahead and open up our hearts as we receive his word today. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of Scripture. And the truth of Scripture also reveals, Lord God, the the pain and the consequences of sin in our lives. And so we pray, God, that as you... Lord, have your way in our hearts as we continue to journey through your word this morning. May you, Lord God, pour your mercy out to be able to receive your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's no sugarcoating this. What David did was a very sinful act. He's a king. And it says here at the very beginning of this passage that we read that at a time when kings go out to war, David sent Joab, his commander, to fight uh, on behalf of David. And so first thing we see when we talk about this series for greatness is choose consistency over compromise. Choose consistency over compromise. And so what we're going to do is do a uh, reverse, reversal of before Bathsheba got pregnant. You know, you know, unless your name is Mary 2,000 years ago, that's the only one, right? Like, I don't know how I got pregnant, okay? Everyone else knows how they got pregnant, okay? And so for Bathsheba, she knows how she got pregnant because it's, it's, it's interesting. In Scripture, specifically says she was purifying herself from that monthly uncleanness. So basically, she just had her period. Uh, this is, you know, we don't have kids in here, so you don't have to worry about all that. Moms are like, oh my gosh, and then I got to explain this to my daughter after Okay, oh, I was gonna say something, I caught myself because that would have embarrassed my wife and my daughter. (laughs) But uh, I said too much. Too late. Thank you, Donna. Okay. So so the reason why it sets that up is because there's no now there's no hiding what David did with Bathsheba because she they can't blame it on her husband, Uriah. So now we're gonna take a look when we talk about sin we're going to reverse how did this all happen? Because for some of us, it's not like, oh, I just ended up with a DUI. I just ended up in divorce. There are steps and things that happen. Maybe it's not your fault that divorce happened, but there's things when you trace back and we do some forensics on the result of sin in our lives being full-blown, what happened? What happened? And so here, as we go back to verse 1, it says, In the springtime, at a time when kings go off to war, David stayed back at the palace. So instead of consistently doing his kingly duties, he's now at the palace having a, um, you know, me day. Stayed home from work, not doing what he was supposed to do. Now, for some of us, maybe we're, we're in that mode where, Yeah, the pandemic, and we have all these reasons why we should stay home. Um, And I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking about spiritually, okay? We're we're staying home spiritually from doing what we're supposed to do. And so for David, because of that, he's now on the rooftop, and he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba. Because she was taking a bath, they called her Bathsheba. (laughs) So now, you know, she's taking a shower, she'd be shower-sheba. Shower Sheba. Um, that's not why she was named Bathsheba. It's just, it's just interesting how that happened. But because he sees this woman that's beautiful named Bathsheba, he sends a messenger to find out who she is. And it's interesting, right, that the messenger comes back and says, she is Bathsheba, and she is a daughter. So remember now, right, she's a daughter of somebody. So you're about, what you're about to do, David, she's the daughter of someone and she's also the wife of somebody, Uriah. She belongs to someone else, David. And so all the warnings were there. And I say that because no one just wakes up one morning and says, who is this woman that's not my wife? Why are my pants off? It doesn't happen like that. But there are steps that occur that result in that moment of sin. And so the warning is going off. And for some of us, maybe the warning are our, our brothers in our small group, the, the maybe women we trust in our lives. Maybe it's like, man, the way you're living your life, are you sure that's what God is calling you to do? And there's warning lights that go off. And maybe when we read Scripture and we pray, God is convicting us of stuff in our lives, and there's warning that goes off in our souls. And I know there's some of us in here, We can be on two ends of the extreme spectrum. When we're driving our car, the warning lights in our car are like suggestions. Ah, just ignore them. You know, it's like Christmas lights. Christmas is almost around the corner. They just make it more festive when I drive. just ignore my lights, right? And then there's other people. As soon as a light comes on, you freak out. You're like, oh my God, my car's going to explode. I'm going to die. I got to get it to the nearest shop. You know, what is this check engine light? ah, check engine. I check them. It's good. You know, you don't really. And and so some of us, we we like to live on the edge, right, with the gas gauge. Some of us, as soon as on the opposite side, as soon as it drops below half, we got to stop at the nearest gas station and fill up. But some of us, we like to live life on the edge, like we're in an action movie. Oh, will he make it home today? I don't know. The gas light's been on for a few days, and we're just going for it. And so for David, He's getting every spiritual light blinking in front of his face. Someone else's daughter, someone else's wife. What are you going to do, David? He sends for her anyways. He sleeps with her. And because of that, she's pregnant. And so in our lives, it starts with this area of being consistent and not compromising. I know it doesn't take a sage to be able to say that, but the... The, what I want to do today, because that's the obvious thing, live consistent, right? Don't compromise. But how? Like, I know that, Pastor, but how? Well, it's, if you're not doing what you're supposed to do, you end up doing what you're not supposed to do. Okay, I'm not trying to sound like Dr. Seuss here, but Galatians chapter 6 verse 9, and then we're going to read the full context later and through verse 7 and 8 in a moment. But Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So for David, he was supposed to be doing something. He was supposed to be out as a king at a time when kings go out to fight. He sent someone else instead and that allowed him to be home meddling, being bored, and then seeing Bathsheba. In our lives, where... Have we neglected what we're supposed to do? And when you don't do what you're supposed to do, you end up doing something you're not supposed to do, right? As a husband, as a father of four, you know, I'm with you men that work really hard. And sometimes after we're done working, we want to go hang out with friends. We want to go to the 19th puka, you know, and enjoy. And then we're we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be fathers. We're supposed to be husbands and be back at home. I heard another pastor say, like, you know, asking, like, man, what are your hobbies? You know, we can have a list of hobbies. And then he's like, if you're married and if you have kids, your hobbies are your family. Because that's what you're supposed to do. But think about it, right? If you're at home and you're doing what you're supposed to do, then you won't be out with the boys getting in trouble. And so, I know that context doesn't apply to every single one of us. We got other people in this situation. Maybe you're single. Maybe, you know, you're not married. um, Maybe you're a wife. Maybe you don't have kids. But it goes, the truth remains the same. What has God called you to do? And the the, the work that God's called you to do, and I don't just mean work as in labor and how you earn your paycheck and your living, but the good work, the eternal work, God has called you. And in this church, we talk about it a lot, right? To know God, follow God, uh, discover purpose, and make a difference. When we're doing these things in our lives, we will be too occupied, too busy to do the things that are not fruitful in our lives. And not only fruit, not fruitful, but I'm talking about the things that may become destructive in our lives. And So why why do we get tired? It says Scripture, there's a reason why Scripture says do not grow weary in doing good. What does it say right after that? For in due season you shall reap a harvest if you do not give up. So the harvest, the reaping, the good that's going to come forth from the good works, that's on God. God says you will reap, so we don't have to worry about that, okay? What do we have to worry about? Giving up if. The if is on us. The contingency is us. Are we going to be the ones that are going to be faithfully doing good work? If not, no wonder we haven't seen the harvest that God wants us to have, the greatness. And, and here's why, you know, scripturally, I think even now we're not an agricultural society for the most part. Um, it, it's like harvest. Like, what does that mean? When you're tilling and you're sowing and then you're watering. You don't see the roots that are taking place and what's happening. And so, going back to the example I gave earlier as fathers, for me, when I come home, I'm tired, <laughs> and I got four kids, and uh, I deal with people's mess all day as a pastor. It's good stuff. I'm I'm blessed, you know, to do to do ministry. And then I come home. And then I have to deal with the mess of my family, like literal mess, because I got, I had, like for years, I had four young kids, right? Kids in diapers, kids that don't know how to clean up themselves, kids that don't understand it's time to shower and go to sleep. Years and years of that. And it was a mess, like a literal mess. Water everywhere, milk everywhere, Cheerios everywhere, poop everywhere. It's a mess. I don't want to deal with that. I just want to go somewhere else. But then dealing with that, afforded time to spend. Now my oldest is in high school. It's crazy. She is a teenager. Crazy. Pray for me. No, she's a good teenager. And, but the reason why she's a good teenager, I realize in part because of the amount of time I spent with her. Laying in her bed, reading to her the word, praying with her, helping her establish her faith in God. And now I'm not the one, you know, we had Seek Week this past week. So downtown, uh, many of you came out with me on Tuesday night. Uh, She was not available to go on Tuesday night, my daughter. But on Wednesday, my daughter's like, Dad, can I go to Seek Week? I didn't say, Stella, do you love Jesus? Well, you know, if you love Jesus, you better go Seek Week. You know, I didn't put that on her, on her own. She's like, Dad, can I go pray and go to Seek Week? And she has a ton of homework, so I, you know, that's another thing. But she went to Seek Week and then stayed up to 1230 doing homework that night. But she'd rather first seek God and His will than, and then let everything else, all these things shall be added. Where did that come from? That, I realized that came from those years of just instilling an example and faith in her, times where I didn't feel like being a dad, but you know what, this is good work. And in due season, you will reap a harvest, and I'm starting to see the harvest now. Praise God. And so I just want to encourage us, whatever that may be, like maybe it's at work, and there's people that are constantly just bringing negative energy, they're constantly being divisive, constantly just backstabbing each other, trying to steal each other's clients or commissions but then be faithful, continue to do good work, for in due season you shall reap. So maybe you're not reaping it in your paychecks now, but God promises you will reap. You will. It's a promise from God. But the question is, are we going to be faithful in doing good works? But here's another, I, I like to first put the the more noble, you know, um, godly reason. So that's, that's why. But here's a, even if you don't believe in God here, I know we got seekers You're like, uh, I don't know if God will give me my harvest. You know, what is this harvest you're talking about, Pastor? Well, I got some truth for you that not doing good works results in the opposite, right? Wrong works, bad works. And here's the truth. Like it says, do not grow weary in doing good. You know why? When you do bad, it's even more tiring. It's more taxing. It's more costly. Let's think about that, right? When we sin when we do things that we know are wrong, think about the the avalanche and the snowball effect of wrongs that ensue after that, the consequences that come. And so for David, because he chose to sleep with another man's wife, which we saw because he didn't do good works going out as a king, she's pregnant. She's pregnant. So what does he do? He calls... Uriah, back from the battlefield, Bathsheba's husband. He's one of David's mighty men. He's out there valiantly fighting David's war. Uriah comes home, and he's hoping Uriah, being you know out in the battlefield with his men, it's like man, spend some quality time with your wife. Get intimate with your wife. But Uriah, knowing that his men are fighting, refuses to sleep with his wife. was like, come on, your wife's so beautiful. And he refuses the first night. Can you imagine the guilt on David now? You know, he's not, not only doing what he's not supposed to do, but now here's someone that even when he's back is still thinking about the men that is left out in the field. Man, the guilt that must have came on David. And so David tries again a second night. This time he gets him drunk. Oh, have another one, eh? suck him up. And, and, and yet... Uriah, again, his heart is like, no, I, I, I mean, he did drink, but he didn't, he didn't lose his inhibitions and then go back to Bathsheba. So David is frustrated. And we talk about how taxing and how tiring sin is. Sin leads to more sin. And uh, <laughs> Pastor Paris says this, so I, I, quote, I, I quote him. Sin makes you stupid. So go ahead, let's just say that. Sin makes you stupid. Okay, so David does a very stupid thing. Because he's unsuccessful in trying to cover up this pregnancy of Uriah, or sorry, of Bathsheba, and Uriah refuses to sleep with his wife, he has to kill Uriah. How does he do this? So he sends him back. He's like, okay, you want to fight so bad, go ahead and fight. Represent the kingdom. But he tells his commander, Joab, put him, station him in the, the most fiercest part of the battle, and then during the the most fiercest part of the fight, pulled back the men except for Uriah. Don't let him know about it. He basically sentenced him to death. And surely enough, the, the plan goes exactly like how David instructed Joab, and Uriah is killed on the battlefield. Man, think of all that work. Because David didn't do good work fighting, now he has to get one of his own faithful, mighty warriors killed. That's more work to me because he didn't do what he's supposed to do. So I say that because I'm trying to bring context and perspective in our lives. Sometimes we think, oh, it's so hard to live holy, so hard to obey God, so hard to live righteously. But it's more tiring and it's more hard to live the opposite way. God doesn't just put commands. God doesn't just put his word in our lives to make it it's like, like how, how much will you be able to go through for me? You know, and it's like the, an episode of The Bachelor. And God has that one rose saying, who's going to win my heart? And then make you do all these tests and think, ooh, look at this guy. He's willing to do this for me and that. No. The reason why we have his written word, we have his laws, and we're not to cherry pick what we want to obey and not obey is because God realizes that when we don't go according to his laws, how destructive it can be for our own lives and for other people's lives. So because of David's sin, it affected Bathsheba, caused the death of Uriah, the murder of Uriah. And even when you read that account, some of David's men, as they were pulling back, got murdered or got killed. But that's, again, I call it murder because David set up. And so compromise will lead to consequences. And we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7 to 10. Before I go there, though, basically, um, who is Nathan? Nathan is now the prophet of God. If you remember, um, there was Samuel that anointed David to be king. He was the prophet of God at the time. So now the baton has passed to Nathan. Nathan is now the mouthpiece of God. And God knows. God saw what happened and uses Nathan to speak truth to David. But what, what, how God does it through Nathan is fascinating. He doesn't straight up confront David. He tells him this story, right? And, and so Nathan doesn't even tell David if this is a, a fictional story or an actual fact that happened. So he goes to David and says, hey, there's this rich man, David, that has a lot of sheep. And then there's this poor man that only has one lamb. This poor man with the one lamb really loves this one lamb, takes care of this one lamb, is sleeps with this one lamb. And then there was a party, and the rich man, instead of using a, from his own sheep, he kills and takes that one poor man's lamb for the party. And as soon as, Dave, as soon as Nathan is done, David erupts in anger. That man deserves death, and he needs to pay back four times what he took. Four times. You know, as a king, a king has to know the law because a king helps pronounce judgment. The law back then is theft is not punishable by death. Theft, you got to repay back four times over what is taken. But why is David now punishing this person in the story with death? Because when you sin, it leads to guilt. And the guilt is now eating away at David's heart. And isn't it interesting? Scripture uh, records that he angrily replied. So he, the, the guilt that is in him, is causing anger to come at other people. And that's what sin does it separates us from other people, it causes us to behave irrationally. As we said, sin makes you stupid. Now you don't act right around other people because of maybe shame, because of guilt. And you start acting differently. And no longer can you have relationships where you look people in the eye because of the sin that you're hiding behind. And so for David, he's like, this man is deserving of death. And then here's what Nathan says. Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God Of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So, what's happening here? So, David is now suffering the consequences. Compromise leads to consequences. And David being confronted with this truth that this man that Nathan was talking about is really you, David. And it's interesting, Nathan then says that all these things, you know, the wives that you have, which, by the way, the Bible's not for polygamy. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, and Evelyn, and Esther, you know, and all these other women for Adam. And uh, so, again, we see the, the good and the bad And so we can learn from this. And so what's happening here is what Nathan is saying as he's like all these things, he's listing these things because he's saying to us, Scripture's saying to us, God is saying to us that sin doesn't satisfy. Sin cannot fulfill, and we're just going to be wanting more and more and more until the, the desire for sin, the consumption for sin actually consumes us. And what scripture declares about sin is sin ultimately leads to death. That's why God takes sin so seriously. Sin is not just some small thing like, oops, I made a mistake. But sin leads to death. And in the book of Romans, it says this. What, and you look up that word, what is death? What is death in scripture? Death in scripture means separation. So like when you physically die here on this earth, our spirit is separated from our bodies. But more significantly, when you read death in scripture, especially in the Old Testament, death is is a relational separation. This is big. Because sometimes when we hear the word sin, we think of it in religious terms. I need to obey the rules. I need to do good things. But when you realize if sin leads to death, and sin is, and death is eternal separation, then we realize that sin causes separation, so I don't want to be separated. And it speaks of what the heart of Christianity is, relationships. God wants us to get right. God wants us to do good because He values relationships. He values the relationship that He has with us, and He values the relationships that we have with one another. And so that is the epitome of Christianity is God wants us to have right relationships first and foremost with Him. But despite all that that's happening and God valuing relationships, why do consequences come in? Well, we're going to talk about the mercy of God in a moment, but there's still earthly consequences. And if you remember, we read Galatians chapter 6 earlier about do not grow weary in doing good, this is the two verses that precede it. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Again, death, eternal separation. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Okay, so here's the thing. There are things that we're going to talk about the forgiveness of God in a moment that we are forgiven of for eternity. But while we're here on this earth, what we sow, we will reap. So as a pastor, just because I'm a man of the cloth, right? I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And in a moment of weakness, I go rob a bank. I know. Don't worry. That's just hypothetical, okay? I'm not thinking about <laughs> robbing a bank. And then, and then the bank across the street, Uh, A man that doesn't know God, lives recklessly, goes and robs the other bank across the street. And then all of a sudden, the cops are like, oh, this is great, two-for-one special. And we both get apprehended. I'm going to jail the same way that man is going to jail. I can't say, oh, but I just repented as you cuffed me. I realized I was wrong in robbing the bank, officer. God has forgiven me of my sins. No, I still need to pay for the penalty of my actions here on this earth. And similarly, David has to pay for the penalty of his actions. And so judgment is pronounced from his own mouth. This man deserves death and he should repay four times over or back what was taken. So David's consequences are, are drastic. Drastic measures happen in his life where the the son that is born to Bathsheba and David out of wedlock, that baby dies seven days after birth. And then his oldest son, Amnon, is murdered by David's other son, Absalom, because the oldest son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar, who's the full sister of uh, Absalom, so he gets upset, and he's upset at his dad for not doing anything, so he takes matters in his own hands and kills Amnon, so Amnon is murdered, and then Absalom, continuing in that spirit of rebellion, raises an entire army to go against David, so David, the kingdom is now split, but Absalom then gets murdered in battle against David's own wishes, because to David, that's still his son, so David is now mourning the loss of three sons. And then there's another son that in the in the same spirit of rebellion when Solomon is about to take the throne, David's other son he he tries to start another ruse to take the throne instead and he gets murdered. And so you see just the the aftermath of what happens. The same judgment that David pronounced four times over that man shall repay. David lost four sons. And sometimes we think we sin in a vacuum, and we think this sin won't hurt anybody. But we don't realize that the sin that we, that we commit can have consequences and effects that affect not just our lives, but and other people's lives like Uriah and Bathsheba, but generations to come like his children that died in all untimely fashions, his four kids, his four sons. So what, do, what are we to do? Come clean before Christ. And so upon hearing of Nathan bringing these charges against David, does David make excuses? No, he is a man after God's heart. Even in failure, Even in realizing how wrong he is, he doesn't cover it up, he doesn't run from Nathan, he doesn't hide, but he runs to God. This is important for us. We need to come clean and be able to confess and come clean before Christ. So the following verse, after Nathan brings these charges against David, this is what David said in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. So that's why David lived. You're not going to die. I've taken away your sin. That is a word for each and every one of us. When we choose to turn to God and receive his mercy, we are not going to die because he's taken away our sin. But have we said, I have sinned against the Lord? See, Right now, because David got caught, what happens in our human fleshly tendency is this thing called worldly sorrow. What worldly sorrow is, is you're sorry you got caught. So, going back to my hypothetical example, again, I'm not planning to do this, but I robbed the bank, I got caught. I could be in prison, I could be eating like prison food and and only have one cup of jello, and the biggest guy in the prison could take my jello. Like, oh man. I don't even get jello. Like, I'm so sorry I sinned because this is terrible, this punishment. That's worldly sorrow. I'm not sorry that I robbed the bank. I'm not sorry that I've offended God and didn't obey His commands and not take something that's not mine. I'm sorry for myself. I'm sorry for the punishment and the results of that punishment. That's what worldly sorrow is. And worldly sorrow in scripture, it says it leads to death. Death is eternal separation from God. So if we continue in our sins and we don't turn to God, then it's going to result in eternal separation from God. Many of us, we want to go to heaven because we like the de- idea of heaven, right? Because hell just sounds like such a terrible place. And so we want to go to heaven because we want to escape hell. But we don't really want to go to heaven because we really want to be with God. And that's still sinful. That's selfish. And that, we can try to do that, but worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to eternal life. Godly sorrow is first and foremost, I've sinned against you, Lord. That's what David said. He didn't say, Oh man, I feel bad for Uriah. What did I do? I have sinned against Uriah. Oh, I feel bad about myself. My, my son, seven days old, died. Oh, man, I should have been another, a father of another child. But he says, I have sinned against you, Lord. And some of us, we're still in the mess that we're in because we haven't fully confessed that I have sinned against you, Lord. We haven't truly experienced godly sorrow. We don't experience godly sorrow because of, I'm just going to simplify it to two things. One, we don't care. We just don't realize the weight and the consequences of our sin. And we're apathetic about it. And in scripture, it talks about our consciences have been seared. It's been so seared that we no longer, we've been ignoring that warning light so much that we no longer feel the conviction that this is wrong because we keep doing it. And so we don't even think it's wrong. So we don't care. The other thing, the reason why, is some of us being confronted by our sins like some of us are being confronted right now the holy spirit's moving in our hearts and it's surfacing some of the dregs that are in our souls the muck you know the unforgiveness in our lives the selfishness the deceit it's gross and it's nasty and we're too afraid and ashamed to turn to god with this So some of us run from God because we just don't care. We keep going the wrong direction. And some of us run from God because we are ashamed of it. And that's called condemnation. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. When we receive condemnation saying our sin is too great, our sin is too evil, and there is no way God can forgive us of this sin, so run from God, that is a lie from the enemy. God is also not just a holy God, not just a just God, but He is our heavenly Father. And you know, uh, I was talking about my oldest daughter, Stella, um, a moment ago being a teenager, but one of my fondest memories that I have with her as a father, she was four years old and uh, she fell and she cut her face right here under her eye. She had this gash. And so as a dad, I wanted to heal right. I didn't want it to get infected, so I needed to clean it. She was four, she's crying because she's in pain. And I'm like, Stella, do you trust daddy to clean this? And I told her straight, out, I was like, as I put this uh, swab on your face, it's going to hurt as I clean it, but it's going to help it be better. And she's crying with tears in her eyes. She turns to me and says, yes, daddy, and I'm cleaning it. And I was so proud of her as a father for her to have that kind of trust towards me as her father. But the benefit and the blessing was for her, it was for her to receive cleansing, it was for her to receive healing. And some of us, we're still in the mess we're in because we haven't fully turned to God. And that is the beauty of repentance. Because we think, okay, I'm no longer an alcoholic. I'm no longer this bitter, rageful person. but we, we, So we turned from that, but we haven't turned to God and we turn to something else. And that's what religion is. Religion is turning to something else for self-help, self-betterment. But relationship is what Christianity is about. So when we turn to God, we don't do it in a religious way and be all pious, Oh, Heavenly Father, take away my sins. We turn to God because like my daughter turned to me to get healing and help. We turn to God and we give him our heart. We give him our sins. We give him our mess. We say, because God, I trust you. And here's the good news as we do this. Psalm 51 is written by David after he was confronted with his sin. He got cleaned from his sin. He writes this Psalm. Have mercy on me, O God. He's crying out to God. According to your steadfast love. This is so good. He's not saying according because I am king, I'm royalty. It's according, have mercy on me. Don't give me what I deserve according to your steadfast love. Steadfast love, it's God's love. Not how much I loved you, God, how good I've been. That guy's been worse, that guy's been worse. So I'm more deserving of mercy. You know, right now we're like, we're looking at scholarships for my daughter. And scholarships, are usually just the X amount of funds available. So the great thing about God's mercy, it's not this merit system. Like, oh yeah, you you do good academically, and uh, so this not this guy. This guy doesn't get mercy. This guy gets mercy. No, it's according to His steadfast love that God distributes His mercy, not giving us what we deserve, the punishment of our sins. As we continue, it says, according to Your abundant mercy, there's scholarships for everybody. You get mercy. You get mercy. You get mercy. God doesn't run out of mercy. It's abundant. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only, godly sorrow. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He calls it evil. So you know what confession is? Again, you know, I'm trying to debunk all this religious uh, terms and, and this, displaying this facade of religion, right? Repentance and confession. It can be very religious. Oh, confess my sins, say it to a person, and then I'm, I'm cleansed. Confession is calling something. When you look at scripture, you break down the Greek word of what confession is. It's saying it in agreement to how the other person says it. So if God calls it evil, you're calling it evil, And that's what David is doing. He's confessing his sins. So he's not watering it down. I made a mistake. No, he's calling it, this is sinful and evil before your eyes. So he's calling it like how God sees it. Um, and, And you know, the good news is God redeems it all. Even though he had to suffer the earthly consequences... He also got to, because he came to God and received healing from God and cleansing from God, God can use all things, amen? And so Bathsheba, I don't know if David married Bathsheba, if he even loved her, because he already had a lot of wives. I, I personally, I believe as such a moment of weakness, he only saw it as a one night stand. He sent her home, you know, tried to like, Uriah, you get, you get her pregnant, then we can all go our merry way. But he had to marry her now because, like, why why does Uriah's son look like David? So he had to marry her shortly after he has Uriah killed, and of course that son dies. But who's the next king after David? His name is Solomon. Who is Solomon's mom? Bathsheba. God, despite the sins of David, was able to redeem that sin and make something beautiful and in, in Scripture, uh, Solomon is no, known as the most wisest king, the wisest man that ever walked the face of this earth. And he was the one that God entrusted and appointed to build, rebuild the temple. That is amazing. And God wants to rebuild the rubble in our lives, and he can take whatever mess we've made and turn it into his message. And so uh, we're going to watch this video right now and this is a, like a modern-day story of betrayal and adultery um, of between a pastor and his wife. But let's watch what God does.
1: Bob and I both loved that whole idea of doing anything for Jesus. We were in ministry. I was a Jesus girl. We were rock solid.
2: For Audrey and I, serving God meant everything to us. And that involved you know, a lot of long hours, a lot of devotion, a lot of sacrifice. As a pastor, I saw this young man who just needed some guidance. So we invited him to be a part of our family activities.
1: I remember feeling so exhausted, so overwhelmed, and hiding that. And then this young guy starts coming into our life. And the first thing he says is he seemed to be doing everything for everybody. Do you need some help? And I was like, yes. But the more we hung out together, it turned into, you are you are so beautiful in every way. Like, I wish I could find a girl even just half as beautiful as you. When I knew I was going to be seeing him, I made sure I looked good. I felt like I was invincible. I thought I could have this guy flirting with me. Nothing would ever really happen. You know, sin takes you further than you ever thought you would go. It goes little by little by little. You just start just one little compromise, just a teeny tiny compromise. And then you quickly find out that there's no such thing as a small compromise. Because that one little touch of the hand or that one little rubbing against, it did something, It, it, it electrified me somehow and so I wanted more. You see, sin always craves more and is never satisfied and wants that next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And before you know it, you're on this, this thing that you just can't get off of. I had a sexual affair with this guy for three weeks, and I knew that it couldn't continue. Because I just felt something in my heart say, you have to tell Bob. It was the most intense, scary, awful moment in the whole world. And I said, I actually did, I did it. I had an affair.
2: So, immediately, my mind is flooded. Images of her with this person. Where am I? Where were our children? This isn't just a little oops. You say that you love me, but yet you give yourself like this? It makes no sense. The rage and the anger that I had was so intense. I just stormed out of the room, slammed doors, stomped my feet. I mean, I was a mess. I really wanted to hurt her. I wanted her to feel what I was feeling.
1: Just when I didn't think the desperation could get any lower, I found out that as a result of this affair, I had become pregnant. And on that day, I didn't think I could face my life. I just felt like I had blown up my whole family. I cried out to God, will you forgive me? And then I went to Bob and I said, could you ever find it in your heart to love me again?
2: I knew that in that moment I had to forgive her, but I was only capable of so much. That afternoon, I had to forgive her again. Later that evening, the next day, weeks, months, even years, forgiveness really was a process for me. But we, together, chose to press in. You know, to each other, but really into God. Because we were hoping that he could rescue, not just us, but rescue our family and my children. When he was born, I asked Audrey if I could name him. I gave him my name, Robert. I don't want my son to ever question one day in his life whose boy he is. He's my son now.
1: The fact that he has his name just is that complete acceptance. It's such a picture of what God does for us. Not only does he accept us, not only does he forgive us, but he gives us his name and he redeems our life from what was supposed to be stolen and taken away. He gives us as a gift. And you know what? There's really a revival after repentance. We don't have to have any secrets anymore. We trust each other, and we love being married.
2: When you participate with sin, it always takes. But when you participate with God, He always gives life.
0: This is such a a beautiful picture, um, what God can do in our lives I know I know in a room like this we have people who are divorced and it didn't work out like what we saw here on screen but God could take anything you know I've seen people remarried after divorce and and have such fruitful marriages after I've seen people's businesses completely fail because they self-destructed and they done things they shouldn't have done in their business and they repented and then God used that experience to do even greater things in, through their life. And So whatever it may be, just know that sin is costly because it destroys relationships. And in the Old Testament, every time a prophet would talk about Israel, the nation of Israel with God's people turning away from God, it would talk about Israel not only um, disobeying God's commands, uh, not following God's laws. But it'll talk about Israel being like a bride committing adultery. And you could see in Bob's, in Bob's heart as he's explaining and re that moment how painful it was for him when he found out about what happened. And he said that I was so angry. I wanted her to feel what, what I felt. And he was like punching holes in the wall as he stormed away. If he were to repay for her the punishment, that would not be a display of mercy. But he displayed mercy, and not only did he display mercy, he displayed grace. Giving, giving Audrey more than she deserved by then taking in this child that's not his own, but making him as his own. And raising the child like his one of his other four kids that he had. And that's what God does in our life. He gives us mercy, even though we don't deserve it. Um, he gives us more than we deserve, but what we are deserving of, he doesn't give it to us. He doesn't give us eternal separation. He doesn't give us the full punishment of our sins because of his mercy. But for us, we think, man, that's, that's so nice of God. And we, we, sometimes we forget what the sin costs. What is the cost of sin? If you remember, I said sin is death, leads to death. So if we don't die, who did die? His name is Jesus. The ultimate act of mercy this earth will ever see happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. When Jesus died for our sins, when he paid the penalty for our sins, it was God displaying his mercy once and for all for us to be able to be reconciled, to be in right relationship with Him. But we need to turn to Him to receive that mercy. Sin is costly. We would never be able to pay for it on our own. If we tried, we will eternally be separated from God. But because of His love, because of His great mercy, His a steadfast love, His abundant mercy, the richness of who He is, we get to experience mercy. Ephesians 2 says this, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead.